Welcome to AM Best Audio. Inflation, recession concerns, deglobalization, energy transition, and rising rates are just a few of the current risks to insurers' investment portfolios. As few bid the low interest rate environment of fond farewell, how is the next chapter in investing taking shape? I'm Lori Chortis, and welcome to this special edition of AMS TV, Insurance Asset Management in the Age of Rate Volatility. We'll be hearing from industry experts who will be discussing the effect of rising interest rates, their impact on annuities and investment products, and how investment strategies are changing. Joining us today are Alton Kogert. He's the president and CEO of Strategic Asset Alliance. Also joining us is Sebastian Coles. He's an associate partner at McKinsey and Company. And Josh Sterling. He's a former insurance equity analyst and now the founder of the Insurance Collaboration to Save Lives. Welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Josh, we'll kick off today's discussion with you. Insurers have operated in a low rate environment for much of the past decade, but now that's changed, how is the insurance asset management community handling that change? I mean, I think they're, I think they're, they're handling it well, but Lori, it's, a, it's been a big, it's a, it's a sea change. You've got 40 years or thereabouts of declining, you know, lower inflation and declining rates. Um, you know, that for an insurance company, I mean, in particular in the life insurance industry, but, uh, but for insurance companies generally is a huge, you know, change. If you think about insurers, you know, the assets are, the assets are sensitive to rates and inflation. The liabilities are sensitive to rates or inflation. The companies that are doing um, almost any degree of like investing, you know, with any kind of credit risk, you know, indirectly, they're, they're sensitive to rates and inflation. Uh, you know, hedging costs are, you know, sensitive to inflation. Uh, and, uh, and, and then finally, policyholder behavior, uh, which is, you know, an X factor that can make things sort of be wildly different, um, you know, through period, periods of change um, can, have, uh, can have, have big impacts. You know, I don't want to take away sort of comments from our other presenters. You've got people that are sort of real experts on this. But from the very top of the house, I think the most interesting thing that's happening is how people are basically able to shift more of their sales efforts to try to focus more on the fixed rate products, you know, whether that's something like fixed annuities uh, or, uh, you know, on the institutional side, things like gigs. Uh, or on the, um, you know, uh, also on the institutional side, but not necessarily about, uh, you know, funding agreements and stuff like that, but pension risk transfer. Any of the products that are very rate sensitive in terms of pricing um, are obviously very attractive here. And the asset management side of the house, I think, is excited to have the opportunity to put more, you know, are excited to have the opportunity to put more assets to work at higher rates. Um, you know, and, you know, uh, and then the, the sales, you know, the sales force and the rest of the organizations typically, especially on the life insurance side, uh, is excited to have the chance to sell product that's more competitive and is more interesting to consumers than we were in basically a, you know, a super low rate environment over the past, you know, certainly five or 10 years. Looking over the past several months, Alton, how has financial market performance over the last year changed how insurers view different asset classes? Well, excellent question, Laurie. Uh, in 2022, let's put that in perspective, uh, last year, uh, only the fourth time in the last 25 years was when equities and treasury bonds both recorded negative total returns. Now, the other three times this occurred were very volatile and momentous years when events like the Great Depression or the start of the Second World War occurred. 
And that very unusual year materially changed those underlying valuations of different asset classes. For example, based upon averages of the last 25 years, investment-grade bonds were historically overvalued at the start of 2022 because of those incredibly low interest rates. However, today, those same, same bonds are slightly undervalued due to rising rates. So good old-fashioned investment-grade bonds are back. Now, compare this to risk assets like large-cap U.S. equities and high-yield bonds that are less overvalued than before, but still a bit overvalued uh, today compared to those 25-year averages. And it gets even more interesting when looking at other risk assets like developed market equities, which went from being fairly valued to a little undervalued. So lots of changes of valuation in the financial markets during the last year. Sebastian, what are the keys to investing during rate uncertainty? Yeah, Laurie, maybe two thoughts uh, from the conversations uh, we're having with clients these days. I mean, I think the first is recognizing that uncertainty and planning for a, a broad range of scenarios is, is, is really key, right? I mean, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but, but I, I would not assume we're returning to, to normal or pre-COVID anytime soon. And, and in fact, right now we're having conversations with clients around how how does your strategy or what does it look like in a world of seven and a seven percent interest rates or even higher? And just to put that in perspective, a year ago we were having similar conversations around what does a world of you know above three percent look like, and 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 how does that change the way you think about the world? And so so really recognizing just how how fast things have changed and and the need to be prepared for that uncertainty. Is, is, I think, very much on the forefronts of carriers. And that, that brings it to investment, right? I think the conversation has changed a bit from investment conversations purely around how do I think about managing my yield to increasingly how do I manage my investments such that I'm prepared and I have resilience across possible scenarios and I'm able to fund the sales and, and, and the strategy overall that I have uh, to, to what Josh was, was describing earlier as well. Um, a couple of risks there, right? Just to highlight, and 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 what what carriers I think are looking at is if you think of the the average portfolio of a of, of a life or annuities carrier um, on the general account, thirty to sixty percent of that uh, will be corporate bonds. Twenty five to forty percent of that will be real estate related uh, investments. And so, given given the tensions we're seeing in the financial system more broadly, but 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 also just pressures in the commercial real estate market. Um, carriers are looking at, at just, just scenario testing and trying to understand what would rate my or ratings migration of some of these assets as well as possible losses due to their capital position, and how does that in turn influence their 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 ability to execute on their on their sales strategies? Um, similarly, right, we talked about interest rates rising. Uh, new money yields today are are two hundred basis points above overall average portfolio yields in, in the industry. And so carriers are looking at locking in some of those higher cash flows to fund the long-term uh, policies they're selling today. And so, so it's really, I think it's that bringing your investment strategy together with uh, your broader sales strategy and then making sure that is resilient um, across the range of scenarios that we're seeing, that that's really top of mind for, 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 for clients that we speak to. Josh, Alton, any thoughts to share on that? No, I would agree with uh, Sebastian, and uh, the fact of the matter is the uh, the huge change in interest rates uh, is uh, it really makes those investments, plain old investment grade bonds, uh, very uh, uh, very attractive. Uh, and he's absolutely right when he talks about the potential 
in any kind of a downswing in the economy for uh, for credit risk type issues. And, and that is something I think that uh, all investors should be very, uh, very aware of and consider in their analysis of uh, risk-based capital adequacy and, and uh, things like that. Lori, I'd just add, um, I, I think excellent comments by your by 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 uh, Sebastian and Alton. But um, I, I'd I'd add that I think the past year or two has really sort of shown us the importance of like the AM best stress testing, uh, and that's not meant to be self serving comment. But I think you can go an entire career in a comfortable environment in, in for insurance risk management because you got favorable trends, and you're just going through an epi, you know a period of time which is you know generally stable what we've seen is a lot of instability and that's you know it's the volatility more than anything else that i think that tends to challenge financial institutions when there's a change in the you know when there's a change in the underlying market you know whether it's relating to you know fx or rates or inflation or equities um, it's sort of being on the wrong side of a big unexpected change that is problematic and i think that you know we're i mean i'm not you know i'm don't not trying to be bearish or anything but you know Time will tell how and how well everybody in the industry manages to this what seems to be a higher level of volatility in a lot of the assumptions of, of stability that we had seen for, for a very long period of time going into it. When we return, what rising interest rates mean for life insurers? And later, a look at how ESG factors into investment behaviors. We're back and we're speaking with Alton Cogert, Josh Sterling, and Sebastian Coles about insurance asset management in the age of rate volatility. Sebastian, talking about higher interest rates, are higher interest rates enabling life insurers to offer higher rates on annuities and investment products? I mean, the, the short answer is, is is probably yes, right? So this may be a, a good time uh, for consumers to look at look at annuity uh, products. Like for example, annuity rates we've seen increase. Uh, Forty to fifty percent over the last uh, last two years. I think for many carriers, um, what this also though highlights is um, increasingly being able to nimbly and quickly respond to to the changing market environment is is becoming a, a competitive advantage for many. Um, right? If you just think about the fact that life insurance, in particular as a whole, it's not a fast industry. Uh, product development takes time. Um, adjusting pricing on, on many products can take can take weeks, if not months, to, to go through internal processes. And so, so what carriers are finding is in volatile times, finding ways to bring together the insights from the investment team with the risk team, but then also sales and product development um, can really enable to figure out where where to move quickly and where are the areas of opportunity um, to reprice and 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 you know be successful in, in the marketplace and bring. Uh, bring some of those increases and in, in returns uh, back to back to consumer. Rising interest rates decrease the value of existing lower earning bonds and life insurance portfolios. Long-term bonds and other interest rate sensitive investments are affected more than shorter term investments. Life insurers tend to hold long-term bonds. Josh, how are insurers adjusting? Uh, the um... <laughs> yeah, so so in, in insurers generally um are are indifferent but, sorry the insurers generally don't care much about their accounting marks that are taken they really try to manage more on either a statutory or economic basis 
um, you know, to some extent, you've seen you've seen insurers that would like to reinvest at higher yields. But typically, I mean, you know, we were talking before about new money rates. Typically, most people are going to just try to primarily invest the new money that's coming in, uh, because you know, for there's there's various accounting and regulatory benefits to that. Um, l- longer term, uh, clearly. Uh, it's easier to run an insurance company in a higher rate environment, um, as long as as long as your costs aren't you know through inflation, especially on the PNC side, uh, lesser on the life insurance side. But as long as your costs, you know, maybe the cost of funding and stuff, you know, as long as those aren't going up by the same degree, you know, you really would much you know over time like to be reinvesting at a higher rate and being able to pay less on your you know pay loss basically pay less lower crediting rates typically on your on your on your products. Um, and, and with that higher spread, you know, that's a big win for insurance company. Alton, for life insurers, realizing losses upon sale of some bonds makes economic sense. If reinvestment yields sufficiently offset the loss in a short time frame, however, for many life insurers, this has meant accumulation of a negative interest maintenance reserve for statutory accounting. At year end for the life industry, IMR was negative for about one-fourth of life companies reducing regulatory capital. Should regulators provide accounting relief or is this merely a temporary phenomenon? That's a great question, Laura. You know, it's in a way, it's a, uh, a cloud on the horizon. And I'm concerned that uh, uh, folks in the press who don't understand statutory accounting, and I'm not sure everybody understands statutory accounting, could, uh, could not really understand what's going on. So bear with me here. But that one-fourth of life insurers, though, with negative IMR at year-end uh, 2022 has been, hasn't been this large since 2008 in the Great Financial Recession. So the idea behind that IMR was to smooth out impacts of one-time realized gains and losses on sales and uh, bonds. And since then, it's generally been realized gains on sale of bonds because rates are dropping, prices are rising, right, of bonds. And that generated a positive IMR, which was amortized into income over the life of the bond sold. The idea behind this is an attempt at better matching income for investments and expenses related to reserves. So, so far, so good. However, with interest rates rising quickly uh, last year, it generated realized losses, like as you mentioned, upon the sale of those bonds. So to the extent those realized losses exceeded the existing positive IMR, the result was a new asset on the balance sheet called negative IMR. But the regulators deemed that a non-admitted deemed that the negative IMR is non-admitted and it's deducted from regulatory capital. Well, as we all know, life insurers, they're financially leveraged institutions, and the last thing they want is a non-admitted asset. So they've asked the NAIC for some kind of relief from negative IMR. And while the NAIC is contemplating this, I've heard some states have already granted partial relief saying, oh, you can have negative IMR up to 5% of surplus. But despite this, I think the NAIC should kind of leave well enough alone. You know, negative IMR should be offset over time by investments in bonds at higher higher reinvestment rates. It's just the mirror opposite of the positive IMR offset where it's being offset by lower reinvestment rates. So as you say, does negative IMR cause a solvency issue for life insurers? Probably not, as long as the insurer is reinvesting in bonds at an improved yield versus the bonds that they just sold at a loss. Thus, uh, negative IMR seems like a temporary issue that will take care of itself over time. However, 
in the rare situation, I think this would be incredibly rare, where negative IMR as a non-admitted asset causes a regulatory capital issue or a BCAR issue, right? Best capital adequacy ratio. It should be addressed on a case-by-case basis with an understanding of the true impact of realized bond losses and the reason they occurred in the first place. When we come back, how ESG factors into investment behaviors and rising interest rates' long-term impact on investing. I'm Lori Chortis, and this is AMBest TV. We're back with this AMBest TV special presentation on insurance asset management in the age of rate volatility. Sebastian, there's growing focus today on environmental, social, and governance issues. How much is ESG factoring into insurers' investment behaviors? Probably, I mean, the primary thing, I think, in, in a lot of conversations we're having uh, these days is, is really around still the, the long-term opportunity for real value creation, right? Uh, when you just think about the, 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 the transition to, to a net zero economy, um, our own research indicates that, that we'll probably get up to $9.3 trillion uh, per year of investment through 2050 to, to manage that transition. Of that, one and a half trillion uh, will be related to energy investment, which, which is roughly doubling where we are today. And most of that growth is coming from uh, investments in renewable energy technologies. And so for carriers who, right, both on the life and, and the PNC side, but in particular on the life and annuity side, have, have large balance sheets and, and very long-term investment horizons, there's tremendous opportunity to, to, to A, finance that transition, of course, but, but also just create value for policyholders and, and, and shareholders as, as investment in, in some of those new technologies is generating really attractive returns for those who can identify um, the technologies that will really ensure that, that transition. And so, so, so I think that's really uh, on, on, on the minds of many carriers we speak to who are, who are building up their, their internal investment capabilities to, uh, to really benefit from that transition. Alton or Josh, any thoughts to share when it comes to ESG and the impact on investment behaviors? Yeah, I'm I'm interested in my fellow panelists and what you folks think about this. Uh, we'll call it a politici- politicization of ESG and uh, how insurers are looking at that. Obviously, it's a huge issue in state pension plans and so forth. At least depending on the state again, right? And uh, how, how do you see your insurance clients looking at that? You know, my sense of it is that every good insurance company knows that you should try to stay out of politics. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, you know, work for the shareholders and, uh, you know, work for the shareholders and your members and your policy and your insureds uh, and, and try, you know, but, you know, they're regulated institutions, you know, many of them by states, some of the states are making, you know, headway on these issues. And so I think there's a, there's a tightrope that the industry has to walk here, uh, you know, paying good respect to like a lot of different perspectives on some of these, these social issues. Yeah. And it's, of course, right? it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a tightrope to navigate uh, because, as, as Josh was saying, is you're subject uh, as a carrier to, to regulation typically across 50 different states. Uh, many carriers have international operations. And, and of course, regulation looks very different on ESG issues in, in Europe than it does in, in the U.S. And so, so I think right, that that regulatory angle is, is, very much, uh, is very much on the minds of many of the clients we speak to. 
in, in, in trying to figure out how do you, A, yes, stay out of politics, do, do well by, by your, your shareholders and your policyholders, but, but navigate uh, just the complex regulatory environment that we're in uh, that will probably take, take a couple of years to, to settle down at least. Well, turning the focus now to technology, Alton, how will the growing availability of AI, machine learning, big data, and analytics impact insurers' investment process? Well, Laurie, it's an ongoing question and, and something I think that will become more and more a part of all business, not just insurers. But because who hasn't heard of GPT chat or similar large language models that allow one to communicate easily with an AI in their native tongue? So... Uh, but for insure investments, we'll have to go quite a bit deeper before AI is a successful part of the process. You know, thus far, it's mostly at external investment managers or insure investment management or, or insurers investment management affiliates. Affiliates. Uh, that's where we're starting to see the beginnings of using AI, machine learning, and, and big data. A few examples have already been publicized in a recent CFA Institute publication. Uh, for example, Goldman Sachs. They're already using starting to use AI, machine learning, and natural language processing as additional tools in their analytic process. However, these tools, they're used in conjunction with careful input from investment professionals to make sure the results are useful and defensible. Uh, Neuberger Berman, they use big data and traditional fundamental anal analytics side by side as part of the investment process. But importantly, we're just at the very dawn of appropriate and successful use cases in the investment process for AI and its related methods. However, I happen to think over time here, we're gonna see almost a Cambrian-like explosion of, of the usage of AI over the next five to 10 years. In other words, we ain't seen nothing yet compared to what we will be seeing. Josh, Warren Buffett famously championed the concept of float as the insurance industry's most attractive feature has time proven him right? You know, Laurie, it's, you can't you can't do an interview about insurance without talking about Warren Buffett. Um, but I'm I'm realizing your question, and I think the the key the key is uh, you know it's not just float; it's sort of what you do with it. Because if you look at like the life insurance industry, it's an incredible amount of float. And compared to Warren Buffett, you know, obviously there hasn't been anywhere near the same degree of like long term compounding a value in the publicly traded life insurance companies. Um, and I think if you were to boil that out, and I don't want to make this a seminar on Warren Buffett, and you know, I respect everybody, is, you know, he's, everybody in insurance got, got their own view. But when I was thinking about this topic, I think there's like four things. I think one, he doesn't worry about accounting, which differentiates him versus vis-a-vis -vis almost everybody else in insurance. Uh, two, um, he basically has invested mostly in equities most of the time with float, which is very different than most other insurance companies, which links back to, you know, the accounting issue. You know, it's lumpy. You know, he takes his lumpy 15 versus his stable 12. Um, the third thing is his float has generally been a positive. His cost of float is another way of saying his cost of financing has generally been favorable over many decades. And, you know, that's because he's largely in the insurance business he's been in, you know, Geico being the biggest, but some of these others as well, international indemnity and so on and so forth. Generally, they've tried to make money on their underwriting, which is obviously different than like, you know, again, not picking on life insurance companies, different model. But, you know, compared to other people who have more float, um, if you can make money on the underwriting and then also make money on the investing, that's awesome. And then finally, you know, to credit um, 
his insight on, and I don't know if, you know, every investment he's ever made has been great, but like Geico was an amazing investment and it was a fantastic, it was a small company with a great franchise that was, that, that was just a cash generating machine because it actually, it was ultimately, you know, could generate profits far in excess and growth far in excess its cost, its cost to run because it was, it was a, it was fundamentally a growth business. And so when you look at like people trying to apply those lines to insurance, you see a lot of it. You see, and and over the past decade or so, there's been a ton of financial sponsors have come into insurance who look at the opportunity to basically manufacture, uh, you know, to to create financial products, you know, typically more on the life insurance side to to generate sort of a cost, like a stable funding base for their financial operations. It's a good idea, but it's nothing like being a Buffett because you know they really you know all for all the all the wisdom of having you know, being able to generate your own liabilities. So you have a stable sense of funding of an alternative asset manager, you know, you're not actually capturing any of those benefits, which I think really are the secret sauce that, you know, again, it comes back to, it's not having float. It's, it's kind of what you do with it. Well, before we wrap things up, I'd like to take the opportunity to ask each of you, if you have any final thoughts to share, or what do you think we might see for investing in 2023 and beyond? Alton, we've been hearing about an upcoming U.S. and global recession for over a year, but the evidence of one is still not there. Given that uncertainty, should insurers continue their current level investment in risk assets? Well, Laurie, it all comes down to risk appetite, and that's really a company by company specific question. As long as the insurer is carefully and quantitatively considered both the potential upside and the worst case downside of any portfolio of risk assets, as well as any downside risks that are unique to the insurer, there's little reason to change a long-term allocation to risk assets. You know, over the last 30 years, we found that there are three basic keys to investment success. And uh, I think Mr. Buffett would agree with just about all of them. Uh, the first uh, being diversification, discipline, and a long-term view. So diversification takes us out of that gives us a free lunch, basically, in investing. It takes us out of the box of uh, higher return means higher risk. And if you want lower risk, you're going to get lower return. But it allows us that diversification to take advantage of, uh, of that, getting out of that box. Discipline means focusing on the goals and objectives in the insurer's investment policy and not being overly influenced by short-term gyrations of the financial markets. In other words, we're, we're not big on market timing. And that long-term view matches the fact that the insurer is designed to be around for a long, long time. Thus, we should be making decisions with that time horizon in, in mind. So unless there are material changes at, at the company, like a major merger, major merger acquisition, capital raising event, et cetera, there probably isn't a good reason to consider a change in the long-term risk asset allocation. Josh, what are some potential black swan events that may impact insurers' investment portfolios in the next 12 months? And what impact will the U.S. banking crisis have on investments? Well, I think you've, I think you've, I think you've hit the nail on the head for one of the most likely black swan events. I mean, we're, we're in the early innings of something that, that could be a more serious uh, crisis. There's an old aphorism on the markets that basically say, you know, the Fed raises rates until something breaks. Uh, and you know, we're seeing how that play out now. It's not clear, of course, you know, no one's got a crystal ball, so it's unclear whether this is the beginning of a, uh, of, of a longer-term sort of credit cycle. 
uh, where, you know, using historical analogs, you know, this would look like something like, you know, the, you know, the Bear Stearns, you know, sort of situation, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, Bear Stearns, you know, or is this something more like, you know, long-term capital management where, you know, there was a, there was a crisis, the Fed came in and then ultimately provided a lot of liquidity and then pushed the markets to, uh, you know, to, uh, to near to, to, to highs, right, you know, during the, during the, uh, the tech bubble. Um, it's hard to figure out for sure which of those scenarios is more probable. As an insurance company, you're supposed to be managing to think about all of these scenarios, though, so you're not sort of betting too much on one side or the other. Um, and so, but, but I think that, you know, one of your other guests, I think, uh, uh, I, I, I think it was uh, Sebastian mentioned real estate. Uh, you know, one of the major concerns for the banking crisis, is this becomes a commercial real estate crisis. Uh, and, you know, that has a lot of fathers in terms of, you know, a lot of investment as well as things like changes post COVID to how people use office space and things like that. That's an area that is worth a lot of investigation on the part of the insurance community, just because how much exposure there is to both, you know, like, like real estate securities, but also loans, you know, things like that. And you know, also direct investments in real estate, you know, commercial real estate properties. Um, but, you know, the final thing, I mean, and I think, you know, those are really sort of the, you know, the, the, the two big areas. Uh, the final thing, it's not directly investments related, but, you know, it does seem like we're, you know, and, you, you know, and your organization has been writing about this, uh, the company's been talking about it a little bit, you know, I'm involved with a group that's, that's working some on it. It does seem like the health environment is different than we were a couple of years ago. And I, and that's, you know, an area which both has an impact on the liability side of the balance sheet, especially for, for people who are, um, uh, you know, in the life insurance industry, for sure. But, you know, maybe what's maybe having a contributing factor to some of the underlying economic macro things we're seeing in terms of like, you know, having you know, a hard time finding employees and, and other types of, uh, you know, under other types of underlying sort of supply dislocations uh, that, that have an impact in investment strategies. And so, you know, I think, you know, I mean, I'd kind of end this point with it. Everything's sort of up in the air right now and whether it's global macro or global geopolitics or the underlying health situation, you know, this is, this is the time where the chief risk officer and the CEO and the CFO need to be talking to the insurance, you know, need to be talking to their CIO and trying to make sure the company's both nimble and intelligent about the emerging risks that seem to be out there. Sebastian, let's assume rates will continue to rise or remain higher for a significant period of time. How should insurers respond going forward? Of course, the response will will vary by, by carrier a bit, right? In that we talked earlier, like it, it's easier, of course, to manage a a life insurance company in in a high interest rate environment. We talked about higher new 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 money yields, and and how do you think about sort of locking in some of those cash flows for the longer term? But I think the key is uh, back to what we said earlier in, in, in the discussion around. There's tremendous uncertainty, and 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 if you had were to to, to think of the next two years as maybe we'll see elevated interest rates. The question really is going forward, are you prepared for the broad range of outcomes thereafter? And, and, and I think there's right, a bit of competing schools of thoughts out there where if you look at the, the historical context, um, we've seen real interest rates decline over the last three decades, uh, going from six to 7% in the 1980s to you know, right around between zero and one before, before COVID. And, 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 and what caused that shift um, right, we're, we're, we're big secular macro trends of changing demographics, aging of society that that increased savings accumulation that that we're chasing the same investments, uh, slowing productivity growth across developed economies that 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 also uh, had an impact on, on on capital returns, and and even a shift in in in, in sort of the risk premium uh, going going up and and, and suppressing risk free rates even further. And so, if you believe that that those trends are not reversing. 
um, you'd have to be prepared for, for ultimately also a reversal of interest rates back to maybe even the levels we saw pre-COVID as, as inflation stabilizes, um, which bringing it back to, 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 to a lot of the insurance clients we talked to, that, that then means uh, you can't bank on, on high interest rates uh, forever. Anyone have any final thoughts to share as we look ahead to the coming months, coming years? Well, one more thing I'll, I'll add, Lori, if I may, and that is that economics is not a science. It's not like we can redo this experiment over and over again and get the same result. And we've gone through a huge experiment here with a huge amount of monetary and fiscal stimulus uh, due largely to uh, the pandemic. And now we're starting to try and get back to whatever normal means. And this experiment that we, that we went through, I believe has never been done before. I'm not sure about other countries, but has never been done before in the United States. You could say we had a pandemic uh, in the early 1900s, the quote unquote Spanish flu, but we didn't have the Fed, we didn't have the, uh, 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 the, the fiscal uh, uh, policy uh, ex- uh, stimulus, stimuli, I'm sorry, the fiscal policy stimuli, as well as the monet- monetary policy. So this is brand new. And I think that's why everybody is struggling <laughs> to get their arms around the risks and to understand fully uh, what it will take for us to get back to a more, quote unquote, normal situation in the economy. Well, this has been a wonderful, informative discussion, and I'd like to thank each of our panelists, Alton Kogert, Sebastian Coles, and Josh Sterling for an outstanding presentation on insurance asset management in the age of rate volatility. For AMS TV, I'm Lori Chortis. Looking to get the full attention of the insurance industry? We have the platforms that will do just that. Whether it be AM Best TV, AM Best Audio, Best Review Magazine, or Best Day. Find out more by calling AM Best Advertising Sales at 908-439-2200, extension 5399, and have a great day.